this is probably a message this is going to push. I'm just saying that up front. Uh, Luke chapter 12, verse 13. This is a message in a sermon series we're calling Crowd Control. We've called it Crowd Control because Luke 11 and 12, the whole sermon series is within Luke 11 and 12. We're just walking through the Gospel of Luke. But those two chapters... um, Luke has assembled a series of teachings of our Lord, uh, hard teachings. It's almost like he's bundled some of the very hard teachings of Christ together. The kinds of teachings that Jesus would use, not to thin out a crowd, but to challenge the crowd as to why they're there. Because you remember, and it's true in this room, there is an accurate Jesus to follow and to worship as Lord and Savior. But there's also very many um, lesser versions of the Christ that we're tempted to follow in our own lives. And so some in the crowd are following Jesus because he's a wise rabbi. He's got the best answers to the questions of the day, which is good, but it's not enough. And some are following uh, Jesus because he's a miracle worker. So he displays some close affinity to the Lord. He can do stuff that other people can't, but they have not yet or... Maybe you have not yet recognized that Jesus has done something that's absolutely essential for hope. And there's others who are following Jesus to watch him trip up because everybody likes to see a virtuous man fall. There's some part of us that's rooting for failure so that we can enjoy. Uh, maybe it's a, it can neutralize our own fallenness. There's all sorts of reasons people were following. And so Jesus is giving these difficult teachings to challenge us as to why have you gathered on the mountain to hear me speak. That's what's happening, and, and um, that's what takes place this morning. The scene that we're looking at here in chapter 12, verse 13, is the same scene that uh, Blake Hardcastle brought a few weeks ago. It's the same day. It's the same conversation. A few weeks ago, you heard that Jesus was teaching, and he was discussing the cost of discipleship, It was a sober encouragement to disciples on this is what you can expect if you follow me. This is what's going to happen. This is the the way your your heart should be conditioned to receive the reality of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And it was difficult teachings that were coming down in the earlier sections of chapter 12. Well, chapter 12, verse 13, picks right up on that. I'm not saying that the man who's about to speak interrupts Jesus or that line of thought, but it's at the same place, it's on the same day, it's in the same vein as the rest of what Jesus was saying earlier. And, and this, is what he, this is what the man says. So I'm going to read you two verses. Verses 13 and 14. It says this, Someone in the crowd said to him, being Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? I want to to stop here and just spend a little time here. You have this odd question from the man, and I think you even have a more, can you say odder, a more odd, an equally odd response from Christ. Because as we all know, I mean, Jesus is in position to judge. And in fact, he goes on to judge. 
He goes on to make a judgment. But you have this question, and I, I, want us, I want us to note the question, because if you think about it, if you try to place yourself in the crowd, it says there were thousands of people, throngs of people that were gathering. And Jesus was teaching to the disciples, but as often the case, he's teaching to the disciples, and then, again, over the heads of the disciples, not intellectually, but over the heads of the disciples, to those who might one day become disciples. That's how he, he teaches. He teaches those who are there to learn, but he's teaching those who might be learners. Okay, and as he's doing that, he's talking about big, weighty ideas, cost of discipleship, what it means, what you can expect. All of these things happen, and amidst all of that, someone raises their hand and says, can you tell my brother to give me my rightful share of the inheritance? I mean, I can't make that sound appropriate. In my mind, it sounds, it sounds like the wrong question given the setting. It sounds like the kind of question you might ask Jesus if you could pull him aside. Like, you know, like if we were at the same place for dinner and he was coming out of the bathroom and you were on the way in, you, you know, Jesus, I'm a big fan of yours. Hey, I got this brother. That's where it might be, if, if, even if it's appropriate, if it's ever appropriate, it would be that kind of appropriate. But thousands of people gathered around Jesus is talking about big, weighty, heavy issues, and this man raises his hand? I don't know. I can't even figure out how to do that. It's, it's shocking to me. Which, by the way, the question's not as shocking as maybe the fact that the man would did it. It is natural. We might say it's natural that a person would go to a rabbi for an answer to this kind of question because unlike us, where our law and our church is separate, in the Hebrew tradition, the law and the church are overlapped. So it might actually be a rabbi who would have a lot of insight as to this question. The rabbi would say, well, don't you know the scriptures? Because the scriptures talk to this sort of thing. So it's not so bizarre that the man would ask Christ. It does feel very flat and menial to me that he would choose to ask Christ in this venue. And Jesus kind of responds in a, simple, in, in a way that I think meets that. He says, who made me judge? And I think he's trying to do two things here. For one, I think Jesus for us is begging the question, what's the, how do you see my authority? So and you could hear it a few different ways. You could hear it kind of sarcastically, like who made me judge? Or you could almost hear it as, well, who has made me the judge? There's a sense of, of, I think Jesus wants us to know when we come to him with questions, like, what is the basis of his authority? Is he just a rabbi? Is he just a pretty wise rabbi who answered the other guy's questions pretty well? And so you want to know what he has? But you might take it or leave it if you don't like the answer. Is that, is that the kind of judge he is? Or is he, in fact, the person who sits on the throne over all of creation and will one day judge the quick and the dead to eternal life or damnation? Which which. Which judge is he? I mean, if this man understood that he was approaching the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the earth, who alone is worthy to open the scroll, and who sits on the throne with God in the most holy place, do you honestly think he would say, will you tell my brother to give me my stuff? And, I, and incidentally, Jesus is going to go on to answer the challenge. So the man's going to ask this baseline childish question, and Jesus is going to say, 
I kind of interpret this as Jesus going, really? Okay. Because he's going to go on to answer it, but he's going to answer it at a very, very deep level. And I'll say this, okay, just about ourselves. I do think we can be in the habit of doing this, of asking Jesus very shallow questions about our life. You have an argument with your wife, right? We just bought a car, so we had one of these. An argument with your spouse about, right? There's a, there's a sense when, whenever believers or followers of God are in some kind of conflict, there's a, there's, everybody retreats quickly to claim the Lord. Now, I have the biblical position. I don't know what position she had, but I had the biblical position. Okay? That's kind of how we can, we can, we can be. And what we end up doing is we try to recruit the Lord for our inch-deep question. We have these, these petty questions of life. Do you buy a house? Do you not buy a house? I know at the time it feels profound. But at some level, I mean, there's a place in a way, right? In the hallway, coming out of the bathroom, maybe the place to pray that to the Lord. But there's another place where we need to understand that really is an inch deep question in this life. And God has not come to guide for the sole purpose of guiding your buying habits. God has come to give you life and that to the fullest. And how do we treat the Lord? I mean, is it possible that we appear as inappropriate as this man on Sunday, gathered together, right? We don't have throngs. We have like a, a mini throng of people who have gathered here. I mean, what are, are there, is your day right now, is it focused on a, on a spiritual triviality? that's getting in the way of everything else? I think the Lord responds in a way that pushes that, pushes that at us. And, and he says this, he says this in 15. He says, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Now, I'm going to call this a bookend because if you look at verse 21, just skip down with me to 21. He says this again. He says, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. And in between, 15 and 21 is a parable. So on the, on the way into the parable, it's almost as though he gives, he kind of prefaces the parable with something of meaning. Then he gives the parable, and then he closes the parable with something of meaning. And I'll say, by the way, he doesn't close this conversation. This conversation continues on and on and on. So the do not worry section you see in your Bible, verses 22, all the way through 34 is dependent upon this man's foolish question. And in fact, I can't, I'm still wrestling with where does the conversation end and a new one begin? Because it goes on and on. So even in 35, you could, be, you could be brought back into, maybe Jesus was never done talking about the cost of discipleship. And this man interrupts the cost of discipleship with what's the benefit of God in my life? And then I, Jesus slowly weaves back towards the cost of discipleship. So it's a long conversation, but the parable itself is bookended by 15 and verse 21, which is this. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Notice he says, watch out. Watch out. That to me, the way I see that is the Lord saying this to me. If you are not vigilant on this issue, you will fail. 
Watch out. The Lord is saying, I I, I think we should receive it this way, that the the nature of greed and possessions in our life is such that unless you are on the lookout, you will fall prey. Watch out. And then he, he begins to separate two ideas. He says a man's life does not consist on the abundance of his possessions. He sets two things on, on opposite sides. He says there's life over here and there are possessions over here and these possessions do not garner this life or, or weave into this life. That they, These possessions do not prop up this life or provide for this life. They are two different things and you need to watch out. And it's here that he begins to go into the parable. We have life on one side and we have wealth on the other. And he's going to tell a parable that's going to begin to push us. I, I should say it, by, by the way, this way. This, this day I expect to push unlikely people. Okay, So it's not going to be the person next to you. And it's going to push because we live, not because this is a wealthy church, okay? I have decided to say that is not the reason why it will push. It will push because we are a materialistic people. Whether we're wealthy or not, we are materialistic. We have in our minds and in our American dream this notion that possessions do inexorably benefit our life. That is, that's what it means to be American, There's so much conversation about the role of possessions in the health of our life. And I'm here to say that is why this will push. Not because you're wealthy. And in fact, we should note that when he's done with this parable, he then says, now don't worry about what you're going to eat or drink. Well, who's that teaching to? Is that to the wealthy? It's to the poor. The mountainside, the throngs of people, are they the mountainside of wealthy? No. He's teaching over the heads of the disciples to the poor or to the average. So this is not a teaching that pushes wealthy. This is a teaching that pushes us because we're materialistic. And, and I'll say this. As the message gets increasing, this is, my, this is my Surgeon General warning is what it is or my pastor preservation comment. As the teaching gets more practical, so you, I, we could talk about the generalities like God loves people, right? Nobody's offended by that. Okay, we could talk about generalities like God brings mercy. Nobody's offended by that. When we say Jesus Christ is the only way to be with one with the Father, that is highly offensive because it gets practical. So I, there's this, this temptation I have to stay up high, and I'm, I'm just here to say that that's not what we're going to do today. It's going to get practical, which means at some point you're going to get pushed. Maybe it's the spirit pushing. Maybe it's pastoral overstatement. Give grace to the latter and submit to the former. Okay? Um, watch out uh, is, is the message. It feels like the license of the Spirit to say, go ahead and spend some time here. So let's look at the parable. This is what it says in verse 16. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. 
Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. Now, if we just look at verses 16 and 17, I think that that sets the stage for the parable. Okay, If you look at 16, first of all, we need to note it says this, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. You hear that? What produced a good crop? The ground produced a good crop, not the man. Okay, I mean, the parable is setting the rules. It's, parables are very simple stories, and they give you a few assumptions right up front, and, and they want you to hold on to these assumptions. The parable is saying it was the ground of the rich man. I mean, rich man in this parable is this tiny, like, anecdote right now. It was the ground that produced a plentiful harvest. It happened to be owned by the rich man. But it was a big crop. In fact, it was, we find out it was way more than he expected because he was caught unaware. It was, what happened here was this was a big bonus year. This was, wow, I didn't even know I planted grapes this year. You know, it was corn stalks seven feet high. It was the greatest boon, bumper crop you could imagine. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of feeling the parable should give you is this was an unexpected boon for this person. He happens to be a rich man, but it was an unexpected boon. And we should say from the very beginning that this parable is not about the accumulation of wealth. It's not about the accumulation of wealth. We can't sit here and say how wrong it was for the ground of that man to produce a bumper crop. It was the ground that did it. If this man was a godly man, he would have said, I am so blessed. Right? The fact that he ends up being not a great guy is secondary. But the accumulation of wealth is not what this parable is talking about. There's other places in the Bible that talk and care for that issue. I'm not saying the Bible is silent on it. I'm saying here, the parable is starting with, this man quite innocently came into a fortune. He's innocently dealing with this notion of wealth. And then it says this. It says, he thought to himself, what will I do? Well, if you're ever studying the Bible and you see that, that's always a danger sign. There's no time in the Bible when, when somebody thinks to themselves that something good happens. Okay? I'm not saying the Bible tells you not to think. I'm saying that's a device of the word. That's a device of the word to, to say he thought to himself instead of going to the Lord. In fact, just look at the text. Look at the way, look at all the first persons in here, okay? He thought to himself, that's 17, I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to myself, you know what it says in the ESV? This is a little more literal. It says, and I'll say to my soul, soul? It says that. That's, Literally how you would translate it. And I'll say to my soul, soul, this is what I'll do. Okay, and then it says, and I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things. You say, well, that's not first person. It's schizophrenic. <laughs> it's me talking to me. Right? It's, I, it's like worse than first person. It's 
like critically first person. You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life. Be easy. Drink and be merry. You see, you see the I thought to myself the nature of that? Like, where is God in all that? God does not show up until you fool. He hasn't asked of the Lord. It's been an internal dialogue the whole time. Think of it this way. The wealth came from like outside of his closed system. Okay, this isn't something that he's been caring for for the past seven years. This isn't anything like that. There's been this bumper crop that's been given. Something from outside of his world came into his world, and yet his dialogue is every bit has closed up. It's as though he received a blessing from without, and yet what to do with something that came from outside of his universe, he, doesn't, he, he actually closes more deeply within himself. It's as though the king himself dropped off a cart of gold on his front door and he like takes it in the house and closes the door and leaves the king outside. I mean, I just ask you, your plans and your dreams, okay? Your dreams. Is God a part of that? Or is, your, is your, your dreams and your hopes and your plans, is that one big, long internal dialogue? That's, that's a question. Are you always planning and replanning and running the numbers and are you never inviting another voice in? I don't mean like a financial advisor. Well, I do, actually but the one who owns the cattle? Do you invite him in? Or are your financial dreams really an issue for you? Is that kind of off limits? To which I think the Lord would say, watch out, you fool. This parable, this is, this is the idea in the parable that's, be, like, if this parable were an iceberg, this would be the idea that's beneath the waterline. It's the, actually, it's the part of the, it's the truth in the parable that does all the damage or blessing in your life, but it's a little harder to connect to. Okay, in a moment, the tip of the iceberg will be seen, and that's what we're going to point at, but really, what's at fundam- fundamentally what's doing the work here is, here is a person who is living their life in a closed conversation away from the will of God. They are, when you are not talking to God, you are running from God. You have fenced him out if he is not in. And, and that, is, that is what's going to cause the problem of the parable. I, I'll give you, so here's, you're wondering, I wonder if I do that. Let me, let me just, here's some baseline practical challenge. Do you tithe? This is not a tithing sermon. But by the way, if you're like here for your first Sunday of your life, you're like, I can't believe they're talking about money. For the record, this is rare, okay? But I'll say, do you tithe? Now, if you're here in your first time, you're like, I don't even know what a tithe is. Well, you don't need to tithe. I'm talking to like everybody in the club. Do you tithe? Right? It's, it's not a membership fee, but it is before the Lord. 
You know, I don't know. I don't know. Has the Lord said anything about the principles behind the tithe? Is there any place we could look where the, I mean, the word of God is God's evidence that he wants to speak to us. He has spoken to us. Do you do, you do it? I, the God who made everything, every single thing, who has called his people. And I know some of you are going to go, well, I'm free of the law. Yeah, but the law is good, and it paints a principled picture. So I've never, in my freedom from the law, I've never find myself in a position to violate it. I've just been free to enjoy it. So if you're wondering, is God part of the dialogue? I mean, I, I am compelled to say as a starting point, well, do you tithe? Like, just... Take that home with you. And I'm not saying if you do tithe, by the way, that you're all good, okay? Because God owns it all. And we'll talk about this more in a second. I'm just saying if we want to find a baseline point of does God have any say over your money, I would say, well, does God have any say over your money? All right, let's keep reading. So the man speaks to himself. He thinks to himself. He dreams for himself. He hopes for himself. And this is what what it says. And and we'll read 18 through 20 again. This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Here's what he does wrong, okay? The nature of his sin is is this, that he purposes the blessing in order to secure a life for himself in the future that it cannot secure. He takes this wealth and he purposes it to secure for himself down the road a sense of security that is in fact unattainable through wealth. Because remember, life and possessions do not meet that way. So hear this. Now some of you this is like getting uncomfortable because you know where it's going. He receives this blessing now in his life. I'm just saying what it's saying. He's taking this blessing now in his life, and he's putting it down the road for later on in his life so that he won't have to worry. That's what it said. The picture, by the way, in this parable is, would be to the listener like grotesquely out of control. Because right? there are no such things back then, back then of like mega farmers, 4,000 acre farmers with harvesters that cost more than our houses do. You know, so the, it's, it's all like family farmers, 40 acres and a mule type folks on the hillside. 
So when they hear a parable of a certain rich farmer, in their minds they're thinking, like rich, like he has a barn maybe. Guy's got a barn. But when Jesus kind of embellishes the parable with this guy had to, just chose, didn't have to, he chose to tear down his barns and build bigger barns. I mean, it would sound like a world of farmers and agrarian society, like, you've got to be kidding me. The notion is that this guy doesn't see any greater purpose with the blessing he's received than to store a grotesque amount of wealth for an unidentified future. That's what should feel like grotesque. Like one's enough, which you know, because I know there's always somebody wealthier than you. You know that's what the wealthy do. Right? When is enough? How much? How much is securing the question mark? The rainy day, how much is enough? You can see that's his exact problem because this is exactly where the Lord challenges him. You fool, don't you know I'm going to take your life today? as though you could preserve it. Let me just ask you this. Do you think in the realm of your faithful imagination that God would at any point in his life decide to bless you in such a financial way so that life in your future would require less faith? Just want to know. Do you think God's in that business? Do you think at any point God's trying to think, you know what I'm going to do? They're going to name it. They're going to claim it. And I'm going to bless it so that life in the future requires less of me than now because I'll be busy 20 years from now. So what I want is for my faithful people to get a gift of wealth or to place a dependence on possessions that will actually be reliable as though possessions does in fact secure my life so that when they get there, they can rely on that instead of relying on me. Do you think in the scope of the way you know God that he is in the business of reducing your faith? Should not as we get older. We grow increasingly dependent on the Lord. I know this is... Okay, so let's talk about retirement. I should say, I do not think the Lord is picking on the retirement with a little R. Okay, the Lord does not think, in my mind, this is me speaking, not the Lord, but I do not think the Lord intends for you to work for Chrysler until the day you are cold. Okay? That's not it. That kind of retirement, that notion of being free from the yoke of an employer, that's, that's not what's going on here. What I do think is going on here is challenging someone whose notion of retirement is that they would accrue enough wealth to be free from a yoke of faith. Or purposeless accruement. So you want to accrue a lot of stuff so that you can relax? What, are you enjoying your Sabbath rest before you're with the Lord? Be diligent so that you can enter into God's rest, is what the word says. The Lord's rest. Does your retirement planning deny eternal life with the Father? Does it appear, I'm just asking you, does it appear if you step back, that what you're really trying to do is squeak a few good years of life in before the potential afterlife that might be there waiting for you. 
Now, this is maybe where the pastor's over-speaking, but I certainly hope that the Spirit is not under-speaking. Many of you, again, this is, I'm not slamming retirement. Many of you have purposeful, sacrificial, God-driven, God-pleasing lives that are free from an employer. That's not what it's about. The question is, has the Lord been part of the language of your retirement planning? Or have you simply submitted to the American dream as though it is, in fact, biblical? How much of the American dream has been co-opted into the walls of the church? I mean, I am at the point in my life where I'm not sure if I'm ever called in the court that I would call the 20th century American church as my star witness. Like, what is the American dream and what is godly? The real question is, did you say when you had this wealth accruing, did you say to your soul, soul, what are we going to do with all this? Or did you say to the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do with all this? That's it. You know what the Lord might have said if this man had done it? What if this man had gone to the Lord and said, Lord, what do you want me to do? What if the Lord had said, this is what I want you to do, and I'm really glad you came to ask me. I want you to tear down your barns and build bigger ones. Because it's going to be seven great years of bounty followed by seven years of famine. And you are going to be the life of these people. I'm just saying it's the nature of the question, not what they actually do. I, like, I'm, there's all sorts of things. Some of you work hard so you can see the world one day. Like, that's great. God made a beautiful world and we should want to go see it. And I think he understands working and then doing things. I'm just asking, is it divinely purposeful? Is your life divinely purposeful? Or are you trying to arrive to a place in this life where you can finally relax? That is not of the Lord. I just don't see it. I'm waiting to get into my seventh day of rest with God. And it will last forever. Until then, we're living in the sixth day. Okay. Here's some very practical tips. So this is, uh, let me tone it down. If you want to write stuff down. Okay. Um, these are some, some thoughts that have come out of meditating on this passage. I think they are biblical and useful. This has nothing, this teaching has nothing to do with wealth accumulation. Uh, that's the first thought. Is this is not, there's nothing in here saying you ought not to enjoy. If, if you get a big fat paycheck, well, God bless you. God bless you. Simply from the math of it, that makes bigger tithing and bigger work for the Lord's kingdom. So that's not, I'm just saying, that's not what this parable is saying. The rest of the Bible has other places that minister to that, okay? Uh, this is a teaching about possessions, which means if you are skimming by, you may still be just as guilty of thinking possessions will change your life. Okay, that's the first thing. Here's the second thing. God has a say in 100% of your possessions, not 10% of your possessions. So God owns outright, as a biblical rule, 10% of your possessions. But he has a say in 100% of your possessions. I used to think, you know, what I like to do is I tithe and then I'm free to do whatever I want. That is not the case. That is not the case. God, is God content with 10% of you? Let me ask you that. Does he just want a tithe of you? Or does he want all of you? Is he not killing the old man and rebirthing a new man? 
Would that new man not ask a question about everything in his life? So I would say, begin to invite, I challenge you as believers to begin to invite the Lord comprehensively into the light, your financial life. And your financial life will, will, will probably be the single best litmus to let you know where you're guarding the Lord off. Number three, godly stewardship is not the same as financial responsibility. Okay? The pagans of this world can be financially responsible. Godly stewardship is a spirit that invites the Lord in to how you deal with money. It's not simply, I pay my bills on time and I'm out of debt. You can have people who are very financially responsible but are terrible stewards of the wealth they've been given. So someone says to me, well, I, I worked hard for all this money, this fortune that I've amassed for myself. It wasn't like the ground gave a good crop. I worked for it. I worked for it. I worked for it. I've been responsible. I didn't go out when they did. I didn't spend like they did. I held it all. I, and I would say, you've been very financially responsible. God made a very financially responsible person. How does he want you to steward that? It's a question on top of it. That's number three. Number four and this is, again, this is me, not the Lord, but I would say, as you're trying to think of, like, how does this truth work itself in? If you are saving for a known expense, I, I would, my sense is, I've had peace with the Spirit in my own life of saying, that is not the massive accruement of wealth that I need to go, well, I need to give all my kids what I've saved up for my kids' college away. If you have known expenses, I don't think the spiritual principle is pushing on those as much as when you're saving up or just garnering money to solve potential question marks. Like if, if the Lord said to you, why do you have all of that money there? And you said, well, you know, if I got in a car accident where I was guilty for the death of 30 people, I thought this would cover it. Like that's the kind of money that I would really challenge. Not... You have to pay your mortgage or, or, or that. That sits in the realm of financial responsibility. And then finally this. There is a tremendous joy that is found by inviting the Lord in to this part of your life. So for some of you, it may sound hard. I want you to know there is, joy is one of those things that you can't decide to go find it jumps upon you in this, in this area of life. I, I believe there is tremendous joy that comes when we say to the Lord, when we, we have extra and we say to the Lord, this is a joyful question to say, Lord, what are we going to do with it? That's a great question. It, it's a nourishing question. Like when you say to the Lord, Lord, we got this. Why would you do this? Like, what are you going to do with it? I, I'm just telling you, I believe the Lord is a loving kind of God who sits down next to you and goes, I'm so glad you asked that. Boy, I have plans, and they're awesome plans. And I was waiting for you. In fact, I gave it to you because I was hoping you'd ask that very question. God blesses us in so, so fully in that way. Augustine, Saint, some of you know St. Augustine, he said, he was writing a commentary on this passage, and he said this, Redemption is found through our wealth, which is such a positive teaching for the church. Like at one level we hear, watch out, and at another level you can say, redemption can be found here. This can be a place where you can enjoy the Lord in a really special way.
May you go and invite God into your conversation. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord, it is all yours. We are all yours. Father, we pray this in light of what uh, you plan to do with us as individuals and as families and as a church. Lord, may your spirit loosen our hands, not make us tight-fisted people. Father, may we see the poor around us as an immediate opportunity for your benevolence, Lord. Father, we just ask you to give us better ears that you might be part of the conversation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.